Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. Our guest for today's episode is Joanna Breidenbach. Joanna Breidenbach is a cultural anthropologist, social entrepreneur, and author. She has been studying with Thomas Hubel for over a decade and explores the importance of inner work for entrepreneurship and social innovation. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome to The Point of Relation. My name is Thomas Hubel. This is my podcast. And I am very happy to be sitting here with Joanna, Joanna Breidenbach. So first of all, Joanna, most welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yes, we know each other many years. So we were, we are both really interested in in the whole phenomenon of disinformation. Let's start our conversation there. I think we can go through different topics today. And um, so I'm very interested in what's the internal state, like what allows in us, in our internal architecture, in our awareness, in our consciousness, in the way we live, and maybe also in the way we are traumatized. What, what allows this information to be a phenomenon in our society? And you worked a lot on researching this information. So I would love first to, for you to give us an overview of what's your research, what are you finding, how does this information show up, uh, what are the areas where it's maybe the most critical or the most severe, and then maybe we dive into the phenomena itself. Yeah, uh, glad to do so. So maybe just to give some kind of a context, um, I, I'm always really interested in digitization and the common good. So that really is the intersection, the work of various better place companies, which I have founded and co-founded, uh, are dealing with. And in our think tank, the Better Place Lab, we have looked at also at um, democracy and how is democracy evolving uh, and what are the challenges at this intersection between technology and dem uh, democracy. And in the beginning, I must say I was very, very positive. I had, I mean, I was a tech enthusiast, definitely. I really saw the potential for technology to, to give global voices really a stage, to have so much more participation, so much more to really mirror the existing complexity of the world in a hitherto unknown way. So um, it took us actually in the think tank also quite some time to actually come to terms with 
all the negative aspects, which we've seen in the past, I would say, maybe 15 years. Um, and how we are actually using technology to update democracy on the one hand, and what can we do and what also what kind of really scary symptoms do we see uh, which are affecting our world um, in the technological age? And disinformation really uh, came to the forefront in the, this very scary year of 2016 when we had the U.S. elections, when we had Brexit, when in Germany we saw also a rising of our radical right-wing party. And in many other countries, like the Philippines, for example, that's a hotbed of disinformation. So it was suddenly a global phenomenon. And we watched the narrative which was being applied, and we saw that it was being read as, oh, disinformation, and I would like to say what actually is disinformation, you know, what's the definition in a, in a bit. But um, so technology is creating disinformation. So technology is fragmenting society. And I, as a good student of Thomas Hübel, you know, thought, well, actually, maybe it's not that easy. You know, maybe it's not that tech is doing this thing to us. But maybe uh, it's there are these prior existing systems of fragmentation, which, of course, now do get amplified with technology, because we do know that false information travels uh, on average six times faster than normal news. We also know that it's global. Yeah, it's a really global phenomenon, and it is really being amplified also by new artificial intelligence technologies where you can create very easily deep fakes, for example, which is also, which are videos um, of people who look very, very realistic and where this boundary between what we perceive to be reality and this simulated reality is really getting more and more blurry. And um, we, we were really interested to look at this more deeply deeper than hitherto, and uh, especially, first of all, to ask this question of what actually is disinformation? Yeah, because the boundary of disinformation and other kinds of information actually is fairly thin, it's very porous. Of course, there are some areas where it's obvious that there, that there are lies which are being spread on social media. Yes, I think we probably all know Pizzagate, that apparently Hillary Clinton was ha having this pedophile ring in the cellar of a New York pizzeria, which actually led to real rifle assaults in that space. We also know that many Russian uh, bots infiltrated Black Lives Matter um, uh, news groups and first of all, re positively reaffirmed Black identity, but then actually spread news that the AIDS virus was being created on purpose by the U.S. government in order to disseminate Black communities, Black and gay communities. So, so there are certain aspects where I think, okay, that's ambiguous. You know, these are really, uh, you know, lies with malicious intent. Uh, but then there are also, uh, of course, many different systemic paradigms which nowadays clash because we are living in this area of or an era of where one paradigm of understanding the world is coming to an end and a new paradigm is we are creating a new paradigm yeah so at this intersection also you can see many competing knowledge regimes where for example in health you know you have the evidence based medicine and then you have natural remedies you you have homeopathy you have things where it's not so easy maybe to say oh well this is true and this is wrong or false yeah 
Um, and we have also, interestingly enough, many cases where something which we have labeled as disinformation before, a few months later, we actually take to be a serious theory. Yeah, so uh, one instance was the uh, corona. Where did the coronavirus originate in? There was a theory, and that was first labeled disinformation, that it came from Chinese laboratories. And then later on, people actually said, okay, well, this is a reasonable hypothesis. Let's actually look at it. Yeah. So, um, and of course, then there is one last boundary, which I'm also really interested in, because of course, you can frame so many things differently. Yeah. For many, many years, the pharma industry has created lots of new illnesses. And you can say, well, you know, is this also part of disinformation or the oil industry, which has tried to manipulate consumers and said, well, you know, uh, you uh, as a consumer, you have your individual carbon footprint and they have created a whole uh, ideology around carbon footprints, which individualize a problem which is really an industrial problem and their own uh, problem yeah so we've we really try to also look at more into this what actually is getting labeled as disinformation and we found out that this is not so not so easy um and then what we did in the first part of our research what that was that we cr looked at a kind of value chain of disinformation we looked at who is actually initiating it what are the motives of people who are initiating it? Like, I mean, people obviously often name Russia, you know, the Chinese state, uh, Iran is often cited, but also individuals, radical parties are the initiators. And then you have a whole industry, actually, of people who are creating, placing all of these informations and then you have the platforms which disseminate it at, at the end of the value chain you have the consumers um, uh, who are actually consuming it and being are being influenced by it and so this already gave us a very big map actually of this whole landscape um, of, of, of disinformation where obviously many different actors profit from it and take different things from it but individuals take very different things from it yeah so it's not so easy oh here's this villain and they create something and then the poor consumer is being misled by it yeah um, and I, I think that for us really was interesting and then we also looked at and that's then my final point before we dive into this more inner aspect of it yeah uh, we also looked at there's also a whole industry of um, organizations fighting disinformation so we have, of course, the platforms. I think YouTube takes about 10 million videos offline every quarter. Yeah. Um, so we have then NGOs who are uh, fact-checking um, and who are providing more realistic information in some areas. We have then um, law companies who are helping victims of disinformation. We have regulators. We have organizations being very keen to upgrade the media literacy of you know, children in, in schools. So right now we have a whole landscape of uh, of, of uh, people providing and fighting uh, disinformation. And even though there are so many actors involved and there is a lot of research going into it, we still don't really know how big the problem is. Yeah, because 
there is a very interesting recent study, just a few months uh, old, which showed that actually the influence of Russian uh, bots and Russian disinformation in the US election of 2016 was actually not very significant at all. And they proposed the theory that maybe our idea of misinformation, that we are, ourselves are so worried and inse feeling so insecure about what information is real and what is not, that that actually is the major influence of this whole talk about disinformation. And that many liberals especially clung to this idea of disinformation because they just couldn't believe how otherwise people would ever vote for Trump. Uh, yeah, so it was they. It was their own excuse, but actually, you know, the 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 facts don't don't give the same answer. It seems that only very very few people were exposed to the bulk of this Russian-led misinformation, and that that's really the the story is much much more complex. Yeah, I think the part that you said is uh, like the fear of being misled i think that that i want to park for a moment because i think that's, a, that's an important player in the whole conversation and but i want to ask you so at the better place lab or in the work that you're doing around misinformation or disinformation like how when when what do you what do you if you at all, what do you recommend to a regular user? Like, what are the signs or how can we navigate through this landscape? And are there signs that can be translated into practical guidelines of how to operate in, in this kind of vast ocean of information that's now there? Which you said, it's, it's great because there's a massive global learning, but there is also kind of no kind of hierarchy in the information that we can consume. So you get a whole ocean of stuff. So is, are there any practical guidelines that, that from your experience and your knowledge can be distilled that we can say, okay, here are at least a few things or principles or guidelines that we can take in account when we navigate through a vast media, social media, whatever landscape nowadays? Well, I think these easy um, uh, recommendations are, there are some, but they don't go very deep, I must say. Uh, yeah, because technology is improving so incredibly that it's even for experts really, really, really hard to discern what is what. So, of course, we can make people aware of the commonly used strategies in the field of disinformation, that you take the look and feel like the fonts and the graphics of serious media outlets, um, and then you copy-paste uh, unserious content in it. Uh, yeah, And you see that uh, if suddenly a very spectacular news comes up, uh, you know, I would always say, well, first double check it. Of course, check the sources, uh, where things come from. Take back a step before you actually spread something yourself, but wait a few hours and see how that news is being, whether it's being reinfirmed or not. So there are a few things people can do, but actually, you know, most of them have not proven very successful. And I think that shows us that there is such a need also for people to believe in this kind of spectacular, um, divisive 
kind of news that really we are confronted with something else. And so I think we can do certain hygienic methods, we can advise people, we can hold platforms to a certain extent accountable, that they mark certain things which are suspicious. But again, I mean, that also is very, you know, it's a double-edged sword, because uh, do we want really platforms to regulate and to be the guardians of what kind of information we get, yes or no? You know, if I look at uh, Elon Musk and what kind of, you know, his ideas, do I want them to be uh, the guidelines of what is real news and what not? I don't think so. Yeah. So at the moment, we have given platforms far too much power, I believe, uh, because the regulatory bodies are a bit paralyzed. And I think the EU is really trying to do something. So there are, of course, efforts. But for me, when I look into this phenomena um, and how we have continued working with this really is to look much deeper and to understand some more of the underlying factors, which make people so open, so willing to join in this play of fragmentation uh, in a way. And what we have been doing is that we've tried to analyze some more underlying systemic factors, which we believe are part of this fragmentation um, and which really prepare the ground uh, for news to then hit us, uh, me as a consumer, and then to spin off in a direction which maybe if I would be a bit saner, I would think, well, no, I'm not going to follow you there. Yeah. And um, so what we've tried, we've tried to analyze, I think we came up with 12 trends or uh, macro trends, which have led to a world where people find it increasingly difficult to relate to perspectives which are different from their own. And I mean, if I just, you know, maybe I just named two or three, I, I think one certainly is what could be called the neoliberal agenda, which has since the 1980s in the politics really led to an alienation between lots of citizens and politics, because politics has retreated and has given big companies so much power. Yeah. So, and it has also uh, led to an increasing social inequality where many people actually do feel very scared, very uh, in need of many things which they don't get, um, where you have lots of envy um, and where you have polarization. Yeah. Uh, certainly also the demise of journalism uh, and uh, the, that there is so less money in quality journalism is also uh, one of them has led to this, uh, to this fragmentation. But of course, when you just also look at imperialism, colonialism, you know, I mean, us in Germany, uh, the Holocaust and how we have dealt with it. I mean, there are so many fault lines uh, which are really dividing society. And in for large parts of the 20th century, the ideology and the practices of the nation state were so they were kind of creating a cohesive society, but it was also, a lot of it was fairly superficial. And the internet then amplified many, many more voices, um, which are now being heard. And we live in so diverse societies, and so many of these perspectives don't get heard. Uh, yeah, so there's so much in, in, in disbalance, and that, that is a really fertile ground for uh, disinformation. 
um, I think was became really apparent throughout all the interviews which we did uh, for this kind of research. And we also looked at something which we are both very interested in. We also looked at the role of trauma in this. Um, and uh, we spoke to you. Uh, we also spoke uh, to some other psychologists. And we really learned that people who have gone through severe individual or collective trauma do find it difficult to hold the ambiguity uh, of either or scenarios of a, a more nuanced view of reality. But for, for it seems as if for the nervous system, it's pretty important to either be, you know, go there or there. Uh, and this, this holding of tensions, which of course, you know, I mean, in our world, which is so complex, so full of just so full of conflict, um, that is a capacity which is so crucial and more and more, People, I mean, including myself, you know, really have to stretch ourselves in order to be able to cope with this, uh, this complexity, so much uncertainty and the knowledge that we really have to create a, a really a new social system, a new eco ecology, new economics. I mean, the, the kind of world we live in is really, really very challenging. Um, and so in this, to this inner clarity, uh, my capacity to to relate to more aspects of myself, to re relate to other aspects and other people who are also different from mine. All of these are capacities which we in our research and also based on your work really came up with that they are crucial if we want to build some kind of an epistemic integrity in a society which is very diverse, but which still has some shared understanding of reality and is able to take multiple perspectives into account. That's beautiful. Yeah, I want to speak for a moment to this shared reality because I think this information is also based on a disembodied mental activity. Mm. And so if, if trauma resides in our bodies, emotions and nervous systems, and of course in our minds, but it creates a disconnect between what informs me intellectually and what can inform me physically. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think that we don't have a good grounding sometimes to ground information in sense making so that what I think can make sense in my physical experience. It's kind of my compass. This alignment is my compass in life. And that's why sometimes, even if I don't know what's the truth, I feel that that's not really true. It's something I feel. There's a sense that we have that this sounds strange. And if we get a feeling that somehow it doesn't align, even if I don't have to prove what is true, and I think we all know that, but we sometimes also know when we are not connected to ourselves and we are overthinking, so we are much more susceptible to that reality. And I think also given that AI can amplify like that level of fake or deep fake, we actually call to be more embodied as the only remedy, I believe. Otherwise, we are going into a kind of a collective psychosis if if cannot ground the information that can be used in many in many in many ways in um kind of adverse or hurtful manners and i think that's why what you spoke to i think is important that's why i also wanted to speak us to have this conversation on the podcast because 
I think we are all responsible for not only our own relationship to this information, but we're also responsible for like our ecosystemic impact. We all have an ecosystemic impact. Either we are grounding a lot of information and there's kind of a more clear water around us, or we are adding to that. And I think a deep sense of authenticity, a mm. sense of honesty, of transparency, a sense of kind of inner coherence that what we say and what we do is congruent. All these things seem to me like an ecosystemic contribution to take care of this information and reduce it just by living that way. And I'm, I'm curious when I say what I say, how this relates to your research, to your understanding, to your work. Yeah, a lot. I mean, not only to our research in disinformation, but also in the all the other kind of innovation work I am doing and the kind of communities I'm building uh, as platforms for a more holistic innovation. Uh, and I mean, for me, that was a journey, you know, to move very much from an intellectual, mental um, heaviness uh, more into my own body, uh, my own relating to my own emotions. Uh, and that is actually the journey which we are also now trying to take. So we we say, okay, well, obviously, it's all of this discussion, uh, all the pr problems and challenges we are facing, obviously, they can't be solved with mental activities and with our brilliant minds alone, because we know the facts, we would do it. Huh? So where else can we get rich data from? And then we say, okay, well, let's go, go back to first principles. And let's go to my subjective experience of me, my relationship to, you know, the people around me and the wider world. And we try to really step back like that and move away from an understanding that innovation and, and progress comes from thinking better, but that it comes from in a way, sensing more and also feeling like it's just exactly like what you have described to get a felt sense of me in the situation I am in, me confronting a piece of news. And um, that's not a foolproof practice, of course, but I know that we can hone this sense and we can really deepen it, but it takes time. Huh? It takes time and it takes love and 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 real also effort um to to move my center of gravity from the thinking apparatus to a much more embodied way of being in the world um and uh, it feels scary also because i think me and so many other people we feel so much pressure to act quickly because we feel that there is so much we need to do right now, that the world is burning and we need to act, you know, yesterday. And I know that you spoke to Bayo Akomulafe, who I really love a lot on your podcast. And I sometimes quote him because he always says, when things are urgent, it's time to slow down. And to take actually that step uh, and to 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 go Back and not just manically react and for me as a change maker try to change the world out there and you know try to manipulate it but to really work in concentric circles and to start with myself 
and to move from there and to actually look at, and that's what we've actually been done with the kind, that's what we have done with the research about disinformation. We have now um, for, we've just started, but we have now a year time uh, to look at, to have conversations with activists who are dealing in the area of disinformation, in the area of climate change, migration, and social justice, which are really some of the most contested hot topics, but which are also, of course, crucial for our survival as, you know, as as uh, on the planet. Um, and we can do workshops with these groups of activists and look at how am I actually part of the problem uh, I'm trying to solve. And of course, most activists would reject that uh, proposition from the start. They will say, no, you know, I know what we need to, what we need to do. And um, we need to be like this and this and this. But more and more activists also realize that the kind of change they want to see in the world is not happening. Uh, and there is a, actually a, quite a deep self-reflexive turn right now in parts of activism where people look into their own strategies and where they come to realize that actually they are deeply entangled with the kind of systemic problems they try to change. And there was a, um, a book which, I, you know, for me was the first one where I really read this very precisely from Anthea Lawson, a British campaigner and activist. And she wrote a book called The Entangled Activist. And she very precisely showed how actually in our being in the world of how we run our organizations, of how we relate to our, you know, enemies or the things which we want to change, how all of these relationships were deeply entangled and where people where activists really were protecting themselves in many ways but putting themselves on a moral pedestal exerting lots of pressure which was so counterproductive or is so counterproductive because pressure creates pressure um, and so I, I'm really interested to to look more in more higher resolution at what actually is happening in this activist sphere, which is really important that, you know, they exist as a force in the world. And at the same time, which often seems so counterproductive and alienates so many people with strategies, which many citizens, even though they also want to see the same kind of change, they can't identify with that kind of change. And so they then, you know, don't want to have anything to do with activism. So I think that for me is this, this really this looking at what is my relationship as somebody who wants to see change in the world, what is my relationship to that change, I think has become a very important and crucial question in the work which we are doing now. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely necessary. And I, I but you know this, I'm convinced that this is the only way to, because I think it's in the, in the in the sentence i am part of an ecosystem or i am the ecosystem everything is in that difference and i think that dualism that we keep uh, when we say okay when i walk through the forest nature is all around me versus nature is through me mm that change like that that becomes again a felt experience that 
I am aware of my intra-connectedness or interdependence with nature, that I am also nature. I'm not just looking at nature. And that change, I think, is a significant healing. And, and that's why I often say that the, the systemic traumatization created normalized processes in our society. And when we say, I, we are also on the planet as human beings, or we are also part of the ecosystem. No, we are not just part of the ecosystem. We are individuals, but we are also the ecosystem. And that at the beginning sounds a bit strange, but when you look deeper, you're, the question that you're raising is absolutely crucial. Uh, do I feel interconnected with the issue that I'm looking at or passionate about or want to solve something in the world? Or am I looking at it? Yeah. And, and I think this is, uh, I think you're really touching something very crucial here with the work and also the kind of the workshops that you're offering in that direction for activists who come to a deeper connectedness so that we see, like as the, as the Tao Te Ching writes beautifully, either uh, if you turn the world into an object, you'll lose it. I think that externalization of the problem is the root cause of the problem. And I hear you say that uh, very beautifully, and I'm so happy that you're passionate about this. And so what, what do you see when you work with activists through the, the work that you're building? Um, what do you see is the transformation? What do you see is change of perspective? What are the practices that help to change the perspective? If you want to scale that, um, what, what's your current experience? Well, first of all, my experience really is, first of all, to acknowledge how deeply ingrained this is. Uh, recently, I looked at the purpose statements of some of the uh, NGOs in Germany and the foundations who are dealing with climate change and who want to save nature. And the stance from which they wrote these mission statements from was so obvious that it is First, we exploited nature. Now we are going to heal it. And, um, you know, a, a friend of mine, Hanno Burmeister, recently wrote a really nice article where he said, well, you know, this is the same kind of attitude. Uh, it's first of all, okay, it's nicer to save the world than to destroy it. But still, you think that you as a human being are the person to create everything you are the one in charge you are the one who can shape everything and you have the separation between yourself and the object you want to change so um and i mean if that is already in every mission statement of organizations you know you can see how foundational it is um i we have just started with this awareness building and we also take it very much. We try not to, you know, teach and preach this, but we really want to explore it together with the groups of activists we work with. And what I observe is, first of all, that it is pretty difficult to really get to, to invite them to a more self-critical stance because so many people are so invested in their position in the problem they are trying to solve. So many of them have had prior, of, that's also pro, where trauma comes in again. So many people have had deeply wounding experiences in the areas they are now trying to solve with their work. 
so that already in the original DNA of the organization, there is some kind of a, a, a crack. And uh, and it's not necessarily necessarily the crack that the light comes in. <laughs> um, and um, to actually invite them into an awareness of that their own actions and their own perspective on the thing they are trying to change actually has an impact. Yeah, which I mean, in physics, you know, that has been known for some while. Um, but it seems to be quite difficult. Um, I find one interesting way of how to, I mean, there are certain inroads. I would say one is so many people in my sphere of work suffer deeply from their work, the, the work culture, the self-exploitation, the very bad conditions most activists live in, also materially, and the kind of also often dysfunctional organizational structures they are operating in. And right now, actually, you see with this increased pressure from the outside world, I see right now many teams exploding, actually. Yeah, there's so much internal tension in organizations. And part of it has to do with the fact that they are so frustrated that they don't feel that they can't change something in the outside world, that then the tendency seems to be that the internally the internal sphere which you can create or control needs to be as pure as possible yeah so that you have now lots of fights around privilege and structural discrimination and all of these hot topics within organizations but at the same time of course these organizations are just exposing the systemic struggle uh, in themselves and um, and so it is, and that seems to be for me an area of where people are very open and receptive, that they do feel the pain of, you know, exhaustion, burnout, poverty, depression, all of these symptoms, which often uh, are, are very prevalent in uh, NGOs. And that through that, you can actually start a conversation and say, well, you know, you want to create really something very different in the world. How come that in your immediate environment, there is so much tension. There is so much also, you know, so many bad words, uh, so much struggle. Um, and that, in a way, makes people think, actually, yes, you know, how come that I don't even in my immediate environment manage to create the kind of conditions which I want to see in the wider world? And if I, I, I feel at the moment that if we work a bit in these concentric circles, um, that that could be a good strategy because it's so apparent and the pain is so big also in, in organizations. Yeah, yeah, I completely resonate with this. And I think also kind of partly in the philanthropy world, there are also big fights going on amongst people that actually have the resources and want to do good, but the 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 frictions create such a stagnation. And, and I very much... I'm with you on that, that only the shift in I cannot treat my own trauma in the world. I need to be able to clarify my motivation, find a deeper relationship, even if it's painful. And then the relationality is the channel for the agency. And then many people will feel included in it as the change process, not being talked to that being talked to is so normal in our world. Yeah. 
because we all grew up in a collectively traumatized environment and yeah. that's how we learn to see the world we we it's like in the water it's that's it we look at many people look at our parents our teachers like people around us and that's how we got trained basically yeah. and and i think that's so important it's really a systemic change and i also believe that that what you just said if if we see if i cannot live it in my closer environment something is not working like that that's a really good sign to say yeah. let's let's stop for a moment and look what's happening here yeah. and and also the other principle that i hear you speak to is the externalization of information mm -hmm. is always a sign that i cannot embody what i'm saying because mm -hmm. otherwise it wouldn't feel that way yeah. otherwise yeah. it would feel connected and the truth doesn't need to feel confrontational and all of that it's much more connected so yeah, yeah I, I agree so, so you know for example I mean for me a beautiful example is always there are certain German activists who speak about the same topics but the way how they speak about it is so different some are really triggering for many, many people, you know, and there are others who say exactly the same things, but the way how they say it, people just listen to it and are interested in it and are starting a conversation. And for me, that is really, really telling uh, that, you know, that it's the space in between, which determines everything. And it's it's not so easy. Uh, actually, we are also trying in the Better Place Lab to integrate, especially more people of color. Uh, we are a pretty white, uh, you know, team, uh, and we have been looking at um, at other trainers, facilitators who we can invite uh, to do the work with us. And it's not so easy because there is so much as you say, externalization, there's so much blame. And it seems to be really difficult for many people to, to also be willing to, you know, also from by diverse backgrounds. And I know it's a huge, very differentiated and, you know, a discussion of what role should people of diverse backgrounds actually play in educating the privileged. And I fully get it that it shouldn't be them that we also as privileged people have to do a lot of the, this work ourselves and, and not use others and re-traumatize many other people uh, who then are, you know, constantly confronted with the same stereotypes and the same um, uh, and ideas. And it seems right now more difficult than a few years ago to actually have constructive dialogues about uh, these topics because they are so highly politicized and there are also many different ideologies in the room and many different degrees of, you know, how much safety do we need to have in a room in order to hold these conversations across populations with, power, you know, different degrees of power and privilege. Um, and so it's it's I find it really, really interesting. Uh, uh, and for me also, I mean, I've learned so much in the, the last years about myself. Also, I must say through the collective trauma facilitation training, which I've done with you. And um, I've learned so much. And again, I knew so much already as an anthropologist. I had read about so many of these things, not maybe under the lens of trauma, but under the lens of post-colonial studies. But to experience it in myself 
to really see, become much more aware of the filters through which I look at the world where I can relate to and where I'm also numb and can't relate to and can only relate intellectually. That has really encouraged me also to do this kind of work in an unconventional way and to really try to get people immersed and to to play more also um, uh, and not only to do all of this work intellectually. So when I when I hear you speak also, you said something very powerful now. You you said I have a lot of knowledge as an anthropologist, for example. You studied this, you're very informed about post-colonial or colonial structures in the world. But that it that we are living in a time when the deeper embodiment of our knowledge, that knowledge is actually intellectual knowledge, emotional knowledge, physical knowledge, relational knowledge, ancestral knowledge. So that there are so many dimensions of knowledge. And you also, you said, when, when I became aware of the filters that I look through, so through my own cultural conditioning, through my own ancestral conditioning, then we begin to see more and And I somehow think that this is the new thing that's emerging in our evolution. That that kind of looking at the world instead of looking as the world. And and we are more and more beginning to look as the world. And, And so much is in that difference. And so I find this very powerful, what you said. I just wanted to... I like uh, that. No, and it is difficult to, in a, in a way, I think probably it is easy to convey because if you embody it, you embody it, and then it's it's there. And at the same time, for somebody like me who constantly struggles at this boundary between as and at, <laughs> um, I do see. I mean, I, when I look at this immense complexity with through in which we are living, uh, or I am living, there is. There are moments, uh, certainly, when I do see this complexity in a much more, in a much wider context. And I, then m- the, my own sense of myself is so different than when I am more like a static, rigid being, which looks at the world. But when I understand myself more to be a uh, connected, I mean, connection, I think that is crucial. That's the, that's the, that's the transmission of all of it. I need to be connected. Even in a small, just group of people, uh, you know, or my own family, in order to have that fluid, that that fluidity, but then to actually to be in the world, really, I'm. It is so very different than um, from what at least I habitually know, and that, of course, also creates a longing in me to to have more of that, uh, because otherwise, I'm just overwhelmed. Uh, yeah, uh, and I can see that I, I've, I mean, in a way, I think it's amazing how we are not overwhelmed constantly all of the time. Uh, uh, yeah, right now, mm-hmm. um, and I really, really want to create, yeah, environments where people can do that kind of learning, where people can slow down. That being said, from somebody who often also often speaks very fast. <laughs> Um, and where this more Im- embodied, situate, situated 
yeah, being in the world uh, is being experienced really that the world is so very different then. Mm. Yeah, you're speaking also to the humility that we sometimes miss in our world that that we are humble where we can be that vessel, like where mm. we are overwhelmed by complexity because the cup is big enough. You know, obviously like mm. if the, the cup is big enough, complexity becomes simple. And uh, but that we are also humble and say, yeah, but we all carry the wounds of our past. We all carry some of the transgressions of our ancestors in us. And in these places, we are not to host complexity. It feels overwhelming. It feels out there. It feels we are looking at it versus we are looking as it. And and that's true too. And like being humble to be at that edge and not seeing that as a deficiency, but as a growth edge that is very interesting. And I think then we we accelerate in a way a very important developmental process. Okay. And and I see our time. So just to conclude our conversation, do you feel there is anything um, else that you? as a conclusion you want to uh, bring here at the end um, or something that we didn't say that is very important to you? Um. Well, I mean, I would end with this, what you just stressed that um, to, to be aware of this amazing power to acknowledge more of what is right now and not to, divide myself into this i found it very powerful what you often say that i split reality into two if i create a vision out there in the world of what the world should be like uh, and what is the ideal vision of the world and that if i want to be effective in all areas which we've spoken about uh, social change uh, you know, the topic of disinformation and all of that that to acknowledge what is in me, that that is really the starting point uh, and to become more fully aware of what I can relate to and what I can't relate to, that has a, a, a huge power. And it is very difficult because we do live in a world, me included, where we constantly want to act and do things and uh, immediately manipulate the outside world and to really take the step and take the space uh, to explore what is it here? What is it right now? I think that for me is a huge, huge, uh, makes a huge difference. Yes, I very much agree with that. <laughs> that's also a beautiful way to maybe let this conversation rest with everybody who's listening and and see how that speaks to everybody who is in the space with us. So thank you, Jana. It was beautiful and great work you're doing. So um, thank you very much. And I think we touched on some very essential topics throughout this journey we were speaking. Thank you, Thomas. I don't know how to divide my own work from yours because so much of what you taught me is now, you know, showing up in this manifestation here. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.